I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hi, I'm Perry Carpenter one of the hosts of the Digital Folklore Podcast, and this is Digital Folklore Unplugged. Unplugged episodes are where we ditch all the fancy production and storytelling elements and bring you the raw or only slightly edited interviews with our folklore experts. On today's episode, I got to speak with Dr. Christina Downs. My name is Dr. Christina Downs. I am the director of the Texas Folklore Society, and I'm also a professor at Tarleton State University. This was a fun one. We talk about conspiracies at the Dallas Zoo, the power of memes and satire accounts, meme warfare, and a ton of fun with urban legends. Okay, let's get unplugged. So I mentioned that we do have a little icebreaker that we're trying to introduce this season. So uh, as we get into this, when you think about it, what emoji do you use way too often or do you hope nobody else uses ever again? I really don't use emojis uh, okay. hardly at all. I, I think I'm a really non-visual oriented person. So back you know a million years ago when we were still making our emojis with like actually a semicolon and a parenthesis. I still do that so much. I, I still do as well. <laughs> that was sort of where I stalled out. 
I think those were, were those emoticons rather than emoji? Yeah. That's sort of where I stalled out. And every now and then I'll do a smiling face or a, a winky face. If I want to make sure somebody knows something was meant sarcastically or humorously or something like that, I'm worried about being misunderstood, but I'm really not an emoji person. Are, are you like me in that whenever I, I actually type it out, I get annoyed whenever it translates it to the actual emoji? I do. <laughs> like, that's not my stated intent, Mr. Computer. Right. It would have been yeah. very easy for me to insert that symbol if I wanted to insert that symbol, and I chose to not. So exactly, any any emoji that you wish would go away, just get wiped out of the uh, whatever keyboards allow you people to use that now. I don't feel really strongly about this, but one that annoys me is what I think is usually called the prayer hands, and that's because mm. it's so yep. easily misunderstood. Sort of like, what are we praying for? Or are those applause hands? Or what's what's sort of going on there? And there's so many like really stupid things that come out of people misunderstanding those. I'm like, if we could just assign, uh, all agree that emoji is ambiguous and not helpful. Yeah. I mean, speaking of ambiguity, so this is out of the icebreaker, but maybe into something that could be fun to explore later. First of all, are you familiar with Poe's Law? Poe's Law, I get them all mixed up. Poe's Law is the, there's no opinion that the internet can't take to the like most ridiculous extreme. Is that that one? I don't or? know that that's, that may be an extension of it. So Poe's Law... Uh, the way I understand it is that anything that is said with uh, with the intent of sarcasm can be then taken as truth by somebody else and propagated. Okay. Uh, so it doesn't it doesn't sound like you've put a ton of I have uh, thought into <laughs> clearly it. not. Well, I mean, I, I think you've seen the extent of it, but maybe not right. kind of framed around that singular concept. When you think about your search history. And if if somebody were to go look through that right now, what bit of uh, search history would be embarrassing or hard to explain related to some of the research that you've done? Because so much of my research deals with crime, I do a lot of research on the intersections of folklore and crime, uh, kind of how contemporary true crime media follows legend patterns. I'm working on a book project right now on serial killers as contemporary monster narratives. Ooh. And so I spend a lot of time Googling things related to serial killers or famous uh, crime cases or random things related to crime. And then sometimes somebody will you know, use an acronym or I look a lot at online true crime communities. And so someone will use an acronym. And go, oh, I don't know what that stands for. And I Google it. And it's something I really wish I hadn't ever found out what it meant. <laughs> right. So a lot of my search history relates to crime, relates to violence, relates to pretty horrific stuff. So my search history could definitely look incriminating if they came up. Cool. Um, and then, so the last one, what is your favorite, whatever we want to call it, urban legend, contemporary legend? Um, and is that something that you're comfortable kind of telling in a storytelling type of mode? So my favorite urban legend, I think, is The Killer in the Back Seat, which is kind of an old school one. It's definitely one that Classic. I grew up with. Yeah. Part of why it's my favorite one is because it's a really teachable one. It's really easy to uh, get students to see how it's used in terms of when people are told the story and what message the story is sending. Uh, I also like it because I think it gets that, uh, as someone who studies crime and studies the intersections of folklore and crime, it gets at a really uncomfortable truth about crime, which is that in most stories, the danger is the stranger lurking in the bushes, right? It's distant from you. Yeah. And part of the point of the killer in the backseat is that the, ki the she thinks the danger is this 
sketchy looking truck that's following her. And then it actually turns out that the danger is much closer, which is true in reality. The danger is usually much closer to you than you'd be comfortable with. It's someone in your immediate circle. It's not. That is that is a really good point. And that was, um, so we hadn't mentioned it before, but you had a, a podcast that I think has like 10 episodes out in it about crime lore. And the first couple, you specifically talked about this urban legend. So what are the high points of the plot? I'll tell it more or less as I remember it as well as I do remember being told it the first yeah. time, which was right around the time I turned 16. My mother told it to me. And what she told me was that this happened to someone that my aunt knew. I was at the time my family's living in Virginia. My aunt's living in Dallas. It's about a woman who was driving home from work late one night. She's kind of tired, has a long way to drive through a not super populated area. She's on the interstate and there's a truck behind her that keeps flashing its brights at her. And the first time it does, she thinks, oh, he just wants to get around me. So she moves over to let him pass and he doesn't pass. He falls back in behind her and keeps flashing his brights at her. And it's making her progressively nervous. So she starts kind of taking some turns. Like, okay, well, I'll get off at this exit and get away from him. But he takes the exit after her. And then when she gets back on the interstate, he follows her back onto the interstate. So it becomes very clear that he's following her. And she doesn't really know what to do. So she just decides to drive home. She knows that her husband's waiting at home. She knows that her husband has a gun. She's thinking that if she can just get home, hopefully she can get into the house fast enough to get away from this man that's following her. As she turns into her driveway, she starts blaring on the horn to get her husband's attention. Her husband comes out of the house, onto the porch, and she runs out of her car towards him, screaming that some of these guys are following her. The truck does pull in behind her, but to her great surprise, the truck driver doesn't follow her. He goes to her car. He goes to her back seat, actually opens the back door, and pulls a man out of her back seat and starts uh, beating on this man to subdue him. And it turns out that this truck driver had seen a man hiding in her back seat with a knife, and that every time he flashed his brights, it's because the man was raising the knife, ready to put it to her throat, and the bright light would make him duck down. And so he was actually following her in order to protect her, not to attack her. Yeah. Well, and I think when you mentioned earlier that that plays with stereotypes, it plays with you know misplaced fears and everything else, and a really good point. I also remember that the variant of that one that started off the movie Urban Legends back from a couple decades ago, which was the guy running the cash register was, uh, I th he had some social awkwardness and some other things that would make somebody alone at night afraid of him. Um, but he was the one that was trying to warn it and uh, it didn't go well. Right. Yeah. Terrified of this kind of awkward, unsightly man that turned out he was trying to help her. Yeah. So from your perspective, when it comes to urban legends, contemporary legends, what is the primary uh, focus that you see of those playing within today's society? So I think they change over time, but yet they still kind of do the same thing. It's sometimes frustrating to me, the stories that I expect all of my students to know. I'm you know, teaching college freshmen and right. sophomores. And for example, a couple of years ago, I signed for the first time a story by an author named Stephen Graham Jones. And it's a takeoff of, of the legend, The Hook, that we all know, The Hook Man. Mm. None of my students had ever heard the legend before. Really? And so they completely missed the whole point of the story. And I was very frustrated with them. But they have their own legends that they tell. And I think one of the main things that legends are used to do is to try to keep people safe. Yeah. 
they can sometimes be incredibly misguided in the way that they do it. But there is an intention of, even when they're not misguided in their, you know, the way that they are sort of set up, they can have uh, obviously terrible unintended consequences sometimes. But one thing I hear a lot from my students are legends related to fentanyl, for example, right now. There's a lot of legends about fentanyl-laced dollar bills being folded up and left on gas station floors or even uh, more sinisterly on playgrounds for children to pick up. And we'll tell you that children have died from just touching the bill that had fentanyl on it. Well, fentanyl is an incredibly dangerous drug and it is absorbed through skin. It's not absorbed through skin to that degree that it's likely that someone who just handles a piece of money with fentanyl and it is going to die of an overdose. But it's absolutely a good thing to do to warn people about how dangerous fentanyl is. Yeah. One of the unintended consequences we're seeing of that is that there's been incidences where people who've been suspected of having taken fentanyl, first responders or just bystanders have refused to help them, worried that touching them to administer CPR or something like that will cause them to absorb fentanyl into their own bodies and overdose. Wow, I hadn't heard that. That's pretty chilling. <laughs> and it's possible that in and of itself is a legend. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. That's what I've heard, you know. Well, you know, I'm I'm not so much up on like what today's biggest urban legends are. I, I hear every now and then some from my kids. The one of the most recent ones, it's probably about a year ago, was like the uh, uh, on TikTok. People were talking about a National Rape Day. Of, it was like August or um, April something, and uh, of course there was nothing really to it. But it was just people talking about saying that you know for 24 hours it's fair game to violate people, and it was. Yeah, it was, uh, it's crazy. And it resurrects itself. It's kind of like this zombie urban legend that comes back every couple of years, specifically for school age kids, I think. Kind of like tainted Halloween candy comes back around. Exactly. It's, it's got the same type of effect to it, I think. So, um, let's, let's talk a little bit about your talk. So, you gave a talk about kind of memes and uh, misconceptions and conspiracies about uh, animal thefts from the Dallas Zoo. Can you give us some of the high points of that? And then I want to uh, talk a little bit about some of the the components about, you know, what makes something a meme, where, where do things turn into conspiracy? But give, give folks a little bit of a high outline of uh, your talk and uh, what you were hoping that people would get out of that. In January of 2023, the Dallas Zoo, which is in Dallas, Texas, had a series of events that happened. Like events is probably the best way to summarize them. Yeah. It started with a clouded leopard being found out of her enclosure. And then it was discovered that her enclosure had been cut open deliberately, as had another enclosure at the zoo that, uh, I think it was the Lappet monkeys, something. I'm probably getting that name of the monkeys wrong. One of the monkey enclosures, uh, both of them had been cut open deliberately. The clouded leopard, her name was Nova. She was found safe and sound on the zoo grounds. She'd actually snuck into Another enclosure that was not in use at the time, she climbed into a cabinet and probably gone to sleep. Nice. And they found her when she went to emerge from this cabinet and a squirrel saw her and freaked out. And they heard the squirrel's panicked sounds and realized, oh, something's going on and found her. So happy ending, the leopard safe, but we know something has happened at the zoo that these two enclosures were cut. Then about a week later, endangered vulture was found deceased in its enclosure Mm -hmm with a wound that was described as suspicious and the people that examined it said that they didn't feel like it was a natural death. And then about a week after that, two of the emperor tamarind monkeys were discovered missing from their enclosure. About two days later, they were recovered 
at an abandoned house where they found several other animals that were mostly domestic animals, things like cats, Mm -hmm. uh, birds, fish, as well as some things that have been stolen from employee-only areas at the zoo. They also, at that point, the zoo released an image of a man that they thought was a suspect. That man was quickly found, I think about a day after that, at the Dallas Aquarium, where it's believed he was kind of looking to find more animals. Fish snapping. Turns out it was a 24-year-old man named Davion Irvin. And despite, as we can talk about, uh, the fact that a lot of the theories as all this was going on were these really elaborate things involving animal rights activists or animal traffickers or you know, some kind of thing targeting the zoo. He just liked animals and said he wanted to keep them all as pets. He admitted that if he was let go, he would probably steal more animals. Uh, one of the other kind of absurd things that came out was that he was using public transportation for all of these events and in fact had taken the monkeys home with him on the dart which is our light rail in the dallas area (laughs) and apparently no one noticed the man with the two monkeys on the dart train late at night that's kind of crazy yeah you'd think that there'd be some great surveillance photos from that and if there are i've never seen them released they've only released the images of him kind of skulking around the zoo But as you can imagine there was a lot of social media response to all of these events starting off with the leopard, I think one of the big comical things was that the announcement that the zoo was closed said it's a code blue, which means a non-dangerous animal out of its enclosure. And then when they released that it was a clouded leopard, people immediately heard leopard and thought, in what world is a leopard a non-dangerous animal? Right. Well, it turns out that a clouded leopard is a completely different species than what we think of when we think of as mm. leopards and fully grown a female clouded leopard is about 25 pounds not that much bigger than an average house cat. Well, right. maybe bigger than an ha- average house cat. It's not that much bigger than my house cats. Yeah, I, I've got a, a very rotund house cat that I think approaches that weight. I have two uh, house cats that I jokingly call the baby mountain lions. They are not rotund. They're just big. They're also very young. They just turn mm. two. So I'm sure they will get re- rotund as cats tend to do when they get a little bit less active. But they're probably both about 18 pounds. Oh, wow. At a healthy weight. Athletic. Yeah. So, so yeah. So, so people were, uh, their expectations were shattered, but at the same time, they were trying to have a fun time online and talk about these. What came out of that? With the, so starting again with the clouded leopard, we saw a lot of cat memes being used. You saw a lot of the um, things in terms of hints to, help the zookeepers catch the cat. You know, have you tried shaking a bag of treats? Have you tried um, opening a can of tuna? Do you need a laser pointer? Then they had like, you know, set out empty boxes and there's a, a meme that's been going around for a while of a, a large leopard. What we think of when we think of as leopards curled up in a small cardboard box and it's kind of the cat, if I fits, I sits kind of mentality and thinking of this applies to all cats. Yeah. There were some jokes between like the different types of animals. So like maybe the, Monkeys let the cat out, but maybe it was the monkeys who gotten out of their uh, enclosure first and cut open the cat's enclosure. Then the cat got blamed for the vulture's death, although of course she had long since been recaptured by them. It was, you know, did the cat get out again? And it sounds to me like the cat was hungry and a lot of that kind of thing. We also just had some general reactions to the absurdity of the fact that the zoo had lost a leopard, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, that sounds way bigger than it was, right? Because right, of the, exactly. the size of the leopard and the fact that it somehow just changed enclosures. And it also, that particular event happened to happen on Friday the 13th. Oh. So it was a lot of 
well, if you think you're having a bad Friday the 13th, at least you didn't lose a leopard like the Dallas Zoo did. We had some kind of Texas-specific humor evoked, which was interesting to see. We had a lot, you know, a lot of people think of Texas, we think of guns, a lot of, uh, you know, we better hope the zoo finds it first because those Texans are all excited to find out it's leopard season. A lot of, uh, you know, kind of referencing maybe other incidences that have happened with animals in the zoo. I think a lot of people are thinking of Harambe. I never saw Harambe specifically mentioned, but I saw a lot of things about, you know, if they shoot this leopard, I'm going to have to come down to Dallas or if they, mm. whatever. Some more lighthearted humor about Texas and the Dallas area in particular. I saw some things about, oh, she's been missing for about two hours. She's probably still in line at Whataburger, but she should be done <laughs> in about 45 minutes. Whataburger is a fast food chain that's very uh, ubiquitous in Texas. I think it's headquartered in San Antonio. Uh, Texans love their Whataburger. There's an area of the Dallas Metroplex called uh, Highland Park, which is mm-hmm. very known for uh, having a lot of money, uh, maybe too much money, kind of be- being too snobby. And there was a lot of, well, nobody knows where the leopard is, but if it was a cougar, she'd definitely be in Highland Park. The Dallas Zoo is missing a clouded leopard, and in completely unrelated news, the Fort Worth Zoo has a new clouded leopard <laughs> just been added. <laughs> I like that one. Yeah. It's a football joke. This was right towards the end of the NFL season. And in fact, so the leopard went missing on a Friday. I think it was on Sunday that the Cowboys were playing the Buccaneers in Dallas. And there's a lot of people alleging that Jerry Jones had engineered this to t- just to distract from the upcoming loss to Tom Brady. Ooh. They did not actually lose. The Cowboys won that week, as it turns out. But nobody knew that on Friday. Right. I, she was born in Houston. I should have uh, noted that. Oh, she's just headed back to Houston. She's going to be the new uh, Texans head coach. So again, I think football humor is very Texas as well. Yeah. It is not for nothing referred to as a religion down here. Mm-hmm. We also saw some people uh, starting accounts from the leopard's perspective. There were two main accounts that I found that were alleging to be the clouded leopard tweeting her adventures. And one of them was very um, kind of, you know, like a cute, wide-eyed little cat exploring things and she was like did you guys know that there's a whole pond here at the zoo that's stocked with waterfowl i'll be back after a quick meal and you know i just saw something called a restroom and i thought that would be a good place to take a nap but it turns out that's not what a restroom is humans are disgusting nice. she you know tweeted some things about the other animals and she was overall you know what we what you think of as cats on the internet basically yeah just being a little chaotic but overall sweet the other Nova Twitter account was very aggressive. It always tweets in all caps. And then when it kept going for a while after she was recaptured and uh, would say things, but like, I'm being detained against my will. Someone call me a lawyer. <laughs> and when the zoo tweeted, you know, Nova the clouded leopard is happy to be back in her enclosure with her sister. These are all lies. I don't even have a sister. She uh, had a lot of tweets directed at a zookeeper named Wendy, who, as best I can tell, is a fictional construct. I hope she is. Otherwise, I feel very bad for Wendy, oh. <laughs> but there's a lot of, hey, Wendy, what did Leopard say when you uh, left her cage unlocked? Nothing, because I was already halfway out of, you know, <laughs> halfway to Mexico. And there's a, uh, for Valentine's Day, she tweeted a poem that was like, roses are red, rosé is trendy, I'm escaping tonight, go to hell, Wendy. <laughs> so <laughs> she kind of kept going. And she responded to the other animal events, too. Yeah. Uh, when the monkeys escaped, it was, you know, the escapes will continue until morale improves. And that was really where I started getting interested in what was going on. Of course, that was where all of these events started, right? It was that day I happened to be 
sitting at my computer and start seeing these things on Twitter and going, wait, what's going on at the Dallas Zoo? And thinking, as folklorists often do, I don't know what's going on here, but there's something going on here. So I'm just going to take a lot of screen caps and come back to mm-hmm. this later. And of course, I had no idea that there would be more incidents. Uh, with the left, with, I'm sorry, with the vulture, things were a lot more sedate. There were a lot of, there was a lot of outpouring of sympathy. Obviously, a dead vulture is way less funny than a missing cat. Right. Really missing 25 pound cat. Once people realized she wasn't really that dangerous, it was, it felt a lot more comfortable being humorous about her versus it's harder to find humor in this. Like I said, there were some jokes about, you know, did the cat get hungry? Did the cat get out again? Those kinds of things. But it was mostly how sad people were about the vulture sympathy kind of for the zoo staff, but then also sort of starting to go, okay, what's going on here? This is two incidents at the same zoo in about a week's time. Is something going on? Are they being targeted by some anti-zoo activists or you know, what's going on here? And then with the monkeys, it was sort of in between a little bit. I think there's a lot more humor than there was the vulture. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of pop culture references. We saw a lot of references to the film 12 Monkeys. But as I should have said also... <laughs> I'm backtracking a little bit, but in terms of the realm of pop culture, when the escape of the clouded leopard was first announced, the Jurassic Park official Twitter account just retweeted the Dallas Zoo's tweet about an escaped animal <laughs> with kind of the big eyes emoji. Yeah. Like, right? And then, of course, immediately people picked up on this. Like, Jurassic Park is like, where have I seen this before? I love that. <laughs> of course, the juxtaposition of a 25-pound cat is with the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. It's quite common. Right. That's why we have the internet, though, right? Exactly. Right. It, is, it, it is those kind of interactions and then the fact that people make Twitter accounts from the perspective of those and refuse to let the joke die long after most people would in polite conversation. More of our interview with Dr. Christina Downs after this. Hey, listeners. If you're like me and enjoy escaping to a real movie theater, then Regal Unlimited just makes sense. It's the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. You can see any standard 2D movie anytime with no blackout dates or restrictions. And your membership lets you get into premium format shows like IMAX and 4DX at a reduced cost. Plus, you'll save 10% on all non-alcoholic concessions. Regal Unlimited, it's the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. So, if you're planning on seeing a couple movies this month, join Regal Unlimited. Now is the best time as summer's coming up. Sign up now in the Regal app or on the website at regmovies.com slash unlimited. And be sure to use the code FOLKLORE24 to get 10% off a three-month subscription. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea, 
Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Welcome back. If there is a Twitter account for the escaped uh, monkeys, I never found it. Uh, I was a little mm. disappointed about that because they were missing for about 36 hours. But I didn't, it's not to say that it's not out there or it could have been out there and been removed before I went looking for it. You know, it's hard to, hard to know. Sometimes if you're not documenting things in real time with the internet, it can be a little bit frustratingly ephemeral. Exactly. Twitter's advanced search functions are not always what we'd hope for them to be. <laughs> but yeah, somebody should fix that. Right. <laughs> Uh, like Twitter was not designed for scholars to do research on. No, I bet that there's some fun projects underway about how to mine Twitter archives, though. I should check into that, see what's out there. I think the biggest trend you saw with the responses with the monkeys was just sort of, okay, what's going on here? Now, at this point, mm-hmm. this is three incidents within the same zoo. If we assume that they're all connected, there's got to be something sinister going on here. And that happened both from kind of the humorous approach and the, the more serious approach. So we saw, you know, like someone needs to call Ace Ventura. We saw a lot of that. Or the penguins from Madagascar were often evoked, like, I know who's behind it. I solved it. Or the man with the yellow hat from Curious George got blamed a few times. Oh, yeah. Evocation of that. But what we really saw was, okay, what's going on? And also, why can't the zoo fix this? So there were a lot of things like, uh, do you need us to fundraise for a ring doorbell for you guys or something (laughs) and in the midst of this of course the zoo is saying we have increased security measures we've added cameras we the dallas pd is helping us with this and it seemed to not be doing any good and people were getting frustrated and you saw more and more and then these sort of rumors that were then being taken as truth you know a lot of well i talked to somebody who knows somebody who works at the zoo and they said this is definitely an inside job a lot of these obviously were eventually misproven when the Leopard was missing. Interestingly, of course, because she was caught within less than 12 hours, I think, of going missing. Yeah. But there was someone that was uh, I found on Twitter who was insisting that the night before she had been in Arlington, Texas, and that several people had caught her on their ring doorbell cameras. Okay. Obviously, that didn't happen. I don't know what they caught on their ring doorbell cameras. We do have podcasts and mountain lions in Texas, so it could have been. Who knows? But we saw a lot of discussion of, of, I keep saying human trafficking, it's animal trafficking, but I think the reason I'm getting mixed up is because it follows so many of the patterns that we see with legends of human trafficking nowadays, which I think today, it's not a brand new thing, certainly, these anxieties over human trafficking. Um, There's a folk artist named Bill Ellis who's done a really great study showing that in the early 20th century, there were all these panics over human trafficking, which of course at the time was called the white slave trade that girls were getting abducted from ice cream parlors. Ice cream parlors were these dangerous places for young ladies of good standing to go. And now it's like the dressing room of Target and, you know, these kind of places that, again, are very benign spaces, but that women are in constant danger of being trafficked. And obviously human trafficking is a very real and very serious problem that it's good that people be more aware of, but what it looks like is not middle-class white women being abducted from the Target dressing room. Yeah, and it's it's not like uh, coded language in a Wayfair catalog either, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Unfortunately, there are much easier ways for human traffickers to find and traffic their victims. As I would imagine, 
there's much easier ways for animal traffickers to get animals than to break into a zoo. Exactly. But it's interesting how similar those things looked in the discourse of like, this has to be animal trafficking. And, um, you know, an- I hear animal trafficking is this big, you know, moneymaker and that they're everywhere. And it's the same kind of ways that people talk about human trafficking. Interesting. And yeah. then, of course, it turned out to be this really mundane answer, which as someone who studies the intersections of crime and legends, that's how often things in the crime world work. Like often, though people tend to, to use another animal metaphor, uh, hear hoofbeats and think zebras rather than horses. It's, it's really usually just horses. It's usually the mundane thing, not the exotic thing. And here it was, I was just a kid who... Though I'm in no position to actually give a diagnosis, seems to maybe have been suffering from some mental health issues mm-hmm. and just really liked animals. Yep. And then, of course, people were hesitant to accept that. Yeah, because you you assume in that because of the just the way our you know mental framing works is there must be a criminal mastermind, and right. he doesn't look or present like a criminal mastermind. And forget the fact that the leopard was recovered within 12 hours and never was actually stolen. And the uh, the vulture, I don't know if they ever solved that or not, but did did they, was it, uh, what was the cause of that? If they have, I have not been able to find an okay. official cause given. What they have said is that they do not believe that Davion Irvin, the man right. um, arrested in connection with the monkeys and the uh, leopard, they don't believe he was involved in the vulture's death. So. Enough of a question mark for somebody with the right mindset to, to still tag that on to the monkey thefts that he was confirmed for and some of the other things that were stolen. And, but at the same time, there's, there's this disjoint in, in reality when they look at the condition of the house that they found these monkeys in and the other things and this other thing that would, in their minds, require a sophisticated criminal mastermind or, or larger organization. To what extent did the conspiracy grow and what was most interesting or what stood out most to you there? It's hard to quantify like how much it grew in terms of you know numbers. Of course, I'm just looking at tweets, and I looked a little bit at Reddit also, and yeah. the Dallas subreddit, and some discussions there. It certainly came up a lot. Uh, these ideas of you know there's got to be some kind of conspiracy, and that again didn't end necessarily right when he was caught. It was sort of a well, who is he really working for? Or I don't believe this. He's a patsy. You know, they're just setting up this poor kid because. He's not going to be able to have any kind of defense. And, you know, it's really something much more shadowy and sinister. There were a lot of accusations against Sue employees also, mm. many of which connected either with the idea of it being animal traffickers. I'd say PETA got blamed a lot as well. I gathered there had been some kind of event with PETA in Dallas about a week before uh, these events all started. So it was immediately like, okay, well, they were here a week before. So obviously. They're trying to break all the animals free, right? Yeah. Right. Again, because that's definitely the most efficient way they could go about this. And is, is even by their definition, would that be the most ethical thing to, to put them in a house with all these other animals? No, I don't think so. Right. Um, so it, uh, it, it, all of it kind of breaks down the whenever you add critical thinking to it. But there's, I think, very little critical thinking. And the knee-jerk reaction is we start to see these, these uh, data dots line up and figure out what the straight line looks like with a uh, potentially inaccurate context you know they say humans are predisposed to recognize patterns to the point that we sometimes see patterns where they don't exist mm-hmm. you know the, the things about like seeing a face in a grilled cheese sandwich or you know whatever some of these things those are delicious <laughs> delicious but i think 
sometimes we do that in a narrative sense also. We want to take events that don't make any sense and put them in a narrative pattern that we can make sense of. And so when you have these pre-existing legends about, again, going back to the human trafficking thing, there probably are legends about animal trafficking. I'm not as familiar with those, but we can certainly superimpose the, the legends about animal trafficking into these pre-existing stories about human trafficking and then take actual current events and put them into a narrative so we can kind of start to make sense of it. And I think even some of the popular culture references that we saw these things about Ace Ventura or 12 Monkeys or things, even Jurassic Park, it's trying to take something that doesn't make any sense and find a pattern that we can put it into to make sense out of it. Yeah. So how does this story wrap up then? Is there any conclusion or moral of the story as you think about the the research and kind of the state of events as they sit today? What are your thoughts? In terms of the actual, you know, wrap up, the last I looked, Davion Irvin is in custody um, and being charged with several counts of animal endangerment and animal cruelty, I think is what he's being charged with. Mm. Forget exactly how many charges he's not, as I said, being charged in relation to the vulture's death. I don't think he's come to trial yet. At least the last time I looked, he hadn't. I don't know if a court date's been set. And of course, the Dallas Zoo says that they have taken precautions. I've yeah. read some articles that are saying, you know, this is a thing that all zoos should kind of take a look at and all of them should learn from it. One thing I didn't mention, sorry. No, <laughs> I'm going you're good. a little bit jumping around, but at the time that all of this was going on, there were also 12 monkeys that were stolen from a zoo in Louisiana. Mm. And the culprit was caught in that as well. I didn't. I don't know as much about what happened there other than immediately when it happened, everyone's assumption was this has to be connected, right? Texas and Louisiana right. are right next to each other. And especially if you're not familiar with how big Texas is, because these two zoos are not actually anywhere near each other. Yeah. But Texas and Louisiana do share a border. And so the immediate assumption was, oh, this has to, has to all be the same person. And it was not. Mm. That. Uh, there was also a bear in St. Louis that... It, I think St. Louis. Uh, there was a bear that escaped its enclosure at a zoo, and it appears it didn't have any help. It just did it all up on its own. But there were also okay, yeah, kind of all mid south area disappearances or weird events. As far as how you know, kind of what the takeaways are, I think the biggest thing is just to keep in mind that the truth is often the most mundane answer, not the not the most exotic answer. It's often very simple. It's often way less grandiose it's not an international network of animal traffickers it, it's just a guy that liked animals you see that a lot with you know, again dealing with true crime stories you see this a lot where their case will be unsolved for decades and decades another texas case there was a woman named Lori erica russ who after she was deceased it turned out that that was not her actual name and they realized that she had changed her name at least twice during her lifetime but nobody knew what her real birth name was what her real birth identity was and why she had gone to such lengths to hide her identity. And there were a lot of, you know, really elaborate conspiracy theories that she had been part of a terrorist group or she'd been part mm. of a cult or she was related to the LeBarons, who are a kind of um, LDS offshoot group that's been involved in a lot of violence. And it turns out she was just a teenage runaway that had uh. maybe suffered some abuse as a teenager and just run off. It was a really mundane, you know, tragic, but something that happens a lot, right? And that's think often what happens when there's when there's a lack of information people will fill it in and often fill it in with something that's much more elaborate than it is yeah i think there's also an interesting thing to think about in the way that we in american culture in particular not not only american culture but 
because I'm working in this case mostly with US-based um, events and can't guarantee where all of the social media posters were, but based on spelling or so whatever, I feel comfortable that most of them were in the US. The way that we relate to animals, because most of us don't encounter wild animals on a regular basis, at least not anything that's larger than a squirrel or a bird. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, at first this leopard is seen as this really dangerous thing. And then immediately, very quickly, people start to realize, oh, she's a small leopard. So now she can come and be my pet kitty. <laughs> and, you know, now I just want to cuddle her. And I'm not, not judging anybody for that. She's really cute. If you uh, go and look up pictures or video of Nova, the Doubtless Zoo has featured her on their social media several times since then. She's very charming. I would be tempted to pet her also. I understand that that's not a good idea, but, you know, and some interesting how in a lot of the kind of joking conspiracy theories that came out about, well, the, the monkeys let the cat out so it could off the vulture. And, it, you know, <laughs> so we have the monkeys kind of being positioned as these evil geniuses. And again, Emperor Chamber monkeys are very small. They're not, this isn't Planet of the Apes, though we saw a lot of things evoking Planet of the yeah. Apes as well. But, you know, the fact that we see monkeys as intelligent, we see them as capable of plotting. We see cats as cuddly and cute. I love the point that you made about the fact that truth is usually the, you know, the, the, the simplest and most direct answer, kind of the Occam's razor piece of this is very close to what truth usually ends up being in these versus the convoluted things that are, um, for lack of a better word, the, the sexier type of explanations that people try to give. I want to see, do you have a couple minutes for just uh, some rapid fire questions as we get ready to uh, finish up just to see if there's commentary or sound bites that come out of those? Sure. For people that don't study folklore, I think people know what a meme is when they see it. But from your perspective, uh, what makes something a meme? I would say that a meme is something that can be easily replicated with potentially minor changes made to it to make it fit a situ particular situation. So something like one of the memes that I saw used in the situation was the one that's been going around for a while. It says, if I'm ever killed by a mountain lion, know that my last words were here, kitty, kitty. <laughs> Someone tweeted that with the words mountain lion crossed off and leopard put in. So, you know, the set image or the set text, but this one thing's been altered to, to fit that versus a joke that's kind of just a wholesale joke, whether it's visual or whether it's verbal, if it's created whole cloth from the from scratch, I don't think it I wouldn't classify it as a meme, though it could become a meme because somebody could grab it and then turn it in. That I think that a meme does not have to be visual, but they very frequently are. There's things that are are more text-based or more verbal things like if I fits, I sits. There's certainly images that's been attached to phrase itself also kind of circulates as a meme. Yeah. So um, we also see a dark side of memes. I'm not sure how much you started to study that professionally, but uh, have you come up against some meme warfare from the propaganda side or state actor side or even just people being mean with their memes and then trying to get off and say, well, I'm just memeing or it's, it's just this unserious thing, so therefore it can't cause real damage? I really haven't gone into that too much in my research. I have seen it because I don't think that you cannot see that and be a person on the internet. Yeah. But I <laughs> I say this as a person whose research is all on murder, but sometimes it just gets a little too dark for me. <laughs> Some of these. After the break, the conclusion of our interview with Dr. Christina Downs. 
Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. Hey ya, Mason here, and I don't think I've mentioned it on the show before, but I have two cats, two big old boys named Chester and Cinders, and I love them both very much, but I didn't grow up with cats, and I've never suffered from general allergies like pollen, so it took me an embarrassingly long time to realize that I was allergic to them. No joke, when I started working from home, I would say things like, wow, I feel like I'm losing my voice every day, or isn't it weird, I can't breathe through my nose for some reason. Ultimately, it was my partner who said, that really sounds like allergies. And long story short, now I take a Claritin every day. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Claret and clear. Use as directed. Welcome back. Memes can be really ugly sometimes, right? They're not just these these cute things that get this fun phrase out, but they they can be used to really hurt somebody's feelings or cause damage or set a context or frame around a situation that's different than reality. What does that say from a folkloric perspective? Do you think? But one of the things that's often overlooked is how powerful humor is. Mm. That humor, I think, by its very nature, we don't take it seriously, right? <laughs> humor yeah. is meant to, we see it as funny, we see it as lighthearted, we see it as trivial. But humor can, at its best, be incredibly subversive and be used to kind of undermine power structures. You know, again, speaking in the best case scenario, it can be used to undermine things like patriarchy or undermine racist power structures or whatever but at its worst humor can also be used to be really damaging and really hurtful because then you, it becomes a shield that you can hide behind and say well that's just a joke why can't you take a joke you know that you can say something awful to somebody and then just say well it was a joke and that's supposed to make them just go oh okay that's all all right and if they don't then you have the now position to say well this person has no sense of humor this person's overly sensitive yeah, the person that can't take the joke is then the bad guy in the situation, right? <laughs> because right. they're you know, they're ruining everybody's fun time. Do you see, and, and you may not based on your previous answer, but do you have any thoughts about memes and how they play into larger conspiracy theories? They certainly do. <laughs> um, I have anything in particular to, I think that we have a concept in folklore studies called kernel narratives. A kernel mm. narrative is... A story that can be told without actually having to tell the whole story. It's saying, oh, you know, the the one about the the woman in the car with the guy in her back seat. Yeah. Or the the one about the guy with the hook for the hand. You know, I can say that. And if you know the story, you can recognize it from just that. So that's a narrative kernel. Yeah, I I do all that all the time because I'm a very uh, I'll describe myself as a very princess in the pea type of person, is is Everything has to be just right for me to start start to feel comfortable or to get anything done. Uh, so is that an example of a kernel narrative? That's a perfect example, yes. But you can just say a princess in the pea and it, anyone immediately knows. You don't have to go, you know, I'm like that one girl whose skin was so sensitive and then that's how they revealed that you don't have to go through the whole story. Yeah. You just say, I'm a princess in the pea kind of, kind of person and immediately you go, okay, I know exactly what that means. And I think that memes can function as narrative kernels so you can use certain memes this can be an in-group thing where people that are one of the big things about conspiracy theories right of course that people adhere to them are very 
convinced that they know the truth and that nobody else does, or that nobody that doesn't mm. believe their story knows the thing, right? And so then you can use these memes as a kind of in-group signal that, like, okay, anyone who already knows that this conspiracy theory is whatever will understand when I throw out something like, do your own research or... Yep. Or the like the where we go one, we go all type of, of stuff or some of the Obama and Hillary memes that we saw during the election cycles, that, yeah. those kind of things. Or, or anything that has to do with George Soros or <laughs> right. all, all that kind of stuff it seems to become uh, very, very memed. And definitely within the, the group that sees that, that narrative thread, that conspiracy throughout the world, uh, you just have to name a name like, well, the Clintons or the Soroses or the Rockefellers. And then all of a sudden this entire world of other narrative threads opens within their mind. I, I can see how that works now. Um, the, the, the term uh, uh, kernel narrative is new to me, though. So thank you for that. Uh, I'm wondering from a folklore perspective, when somebody talks about like dog whistling, is, is there a folkloric equivalent of that or, or does that play into folklore? definitely does. I don't know that we have our own term for it. It's certainly something that we've been aware of in folklore studies for quite some time. But, you know, I always tell people that one of my frustrations with conspiracy theories, because kind of not even just as a scholar, recreationally, I love a good conspiracy theory. Like, yeah. I don't adhere to any of them, but I kind of find them fun. And the problem is with at least 90% of them, when you get down to the bottom, the core of it is something really terrible. Like you get to the bottom, you're like, oh, but this is just anti-Semitism. <laughs> oh, right. this is just patriarchy. <laughs> oh, this is, you know, and and it happens on all sides of the political spectrum. And uh, you know, it can be frustrating. And there's things like you mentioned George Soros. George Soros is one individual, but in certain people's minds has come to stand for everything that's evil about Judaism and like this kind yeah. of symbol of like this Jewish cabal that's secretly running the world, right? And so when people evoke him, whether they're even fully conscious of it, because I think sometimes they are, and I think sometimes they're not really fully conscious what they're doing when they say something like that. Not to say that they never are, because they certainly are some of the time, but that it is they're absolutely kind of functioning as a dog whistle in this like, you know, this is calling out you know, immediately alleging things against Jewish people or things like follow the money, things like that right. often are used in very anti-Semitic ways. And these assumptions that go back to the Middle Ages <laughs> that the Jews secretly have all of the money and are controlling all of the world's finances. And Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how much of the conspiracy world re revolves around anti-Semitism and thing, concepts like blood libel and and so on. It, it's almost sickening to see how often these same things come back, but in different forms to reinforce the same kind of horrible, unthinkable ideas. Right. It, it's, it's a little frustrating when you, like, even with something that's so new as memes, as internet folklore, we're still going back to these ideas that go back, you know, 1500 years. Yeah. Like, come on. Can we come up with, I mean, and there are, I will say, I just call out one of the, the U.S., the word I went looking for is parallel to anti-Semitism, um, is nativism or xenophobia mm. or just anti-immigrant sentiment. So, you know, historically in Germany, whenever things were bad, people blamed the Jews. In the U.S., whenever anything's bad, we blame immigrants. Yeah. As much as we always brag about being a nation of immigrants, 
Yeah, we we conveniently forget that whenever it comes to trying to address today's economic or social problems. It's it's easier to create in groups and out groups and kind of hoist all of our woes uh, on this other you know outside group, which is uh, really really again scary. I'm sure from your perspective as a folklorist who's absorbed all of the you know, different times that this has happened and different ways that it's been expressed, and then you see that of the news and people are saying, oh, there's a dangerous caravan coming um, that is going to uh, break their way through our borders and come and slaughter tens of thousands of innocents. And you're like, probably not. Right. Probably have better things to, you know, we here in my part of uh, North Central Texas last week, they caught a serial killer in Dallas who mm. it's, I think, nationally been overshadowed because it was within a day or two of uh, the arrest of Rex Hurman in New York. Uh, connection with the Gilgo Beach murders. And there's a lot of reasons why it got less attention. There's fewer victims. It's more recent and, you know, whatever. But the man who's been arrested happened to be an undocumented immigrant. And so yeah. all of this course is immediately, you know, well, this is what happens when we let them into our country. Say nothing of statistically, serial killers are much more likely to be native born US citizens than to be immigrants of any kind. Yeah, they're much, much more likely somebody, you know, my race and my age that is you know, walks around with a lot of, whether we realize it or not, privilege and invisibility. Exactly. All right. So then then last question on this theme then, folklore and memes as ways uh, or methods that people use to try to persuade each other. Can you, can you talk about folklore as uh, ways of trying to get ideas across and persuade people into a certain group or belief system? There's probably people that have done... Uh, research on this specifically, I have not, but I think there's a lot that could be said about this. There's, I know that there's been a lot of discourse on the ways that we communicate nowadays and the fact that we are much more visual communicators than we were, you know, even 10 years ago, as I said, when I was talking about emojis, I'm not a particularly visually oriented person. I, you know, if you look at my Twitter account, it's mostly text. My Instagram is maybe some pictures of my cats, but it's very neglected, not a visually oriented person, but a lot of people nowadays are incredibly visual. Uh, you know, Instagram is really popular. TikTok, things like that, that have the visual component, I think are a lot more how, when I talk to my students, that's a lot of how they communicate. That's a lot of how they engage. They're much more likely to be active on Instagram or Snapchat than they are to be active on Twitter because there's that visual component in that way. And so I think one thing about memes, particularly the ones that are visual, as I said earlier, I don't believe that all memes have to be visual, but many of them are. There's that visual element of communication. The other thing about them is that they're very short, they're very pithy, they're very to the point, and they play into something that people are always critical of nowadays. Of, you know, these kids nowadays don't have much of an attention span, but people are, and I don't think it's just kids, as much as people always want to blame millennials, I think uh, you know boomers are engaging nowadays in very much the same way. They're less likely to sit down there and read and paragraphs long post on reddit or yeah. facebook or read an email that's got this you know paragraphs long explanation of you know whatever memes can communicate that in like a sentence and an image and mm. it's kind of bite-sized it's very easy for someone to kind of capture to absorb and to possibly then be inspired to go look for more like if they do understand it then you're kind of preaching to the choir. You don't need to persuade them. But if you are trying to persuade somebody, there might be something in there that they're going to go, huh, what is that? And then Google it. And if you're lucky, they'll 
in their Googling find sources that you want them to find there. Thanks so much for listening. And thank you to Dr. Christina Downs for spending time with us. Check out our show notes to find out more about Christina. We'll have links to her social media, a few additional interviews, and more. Oh, and be sure to check out her podcast, Crime Lore. It's a great show exploring the intersection between our traditional stories and true crime. If you have any questions, feedback, or ideas for a future episode, you can reach us at hello at eighthlayermedia.com. Or if you'd like information about sponsoring an episode, a few episodes, or even an entire season, hit us up. We'd love to hear from you. Digital Folklore is created and produced by Eighth Layer Media. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.